Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Oh, man. I think I'm on the way to becoming a ghost, Wendy. I'm getting scared. Oh, no. Why, Mike? Because I turned 40 on Saturday. Woo-wee. Yeah, 40 years old. That's a big g- week. Yeah, you know, I guess um, before it didn't seem like a real thing to me. But that's, I mean, that's re- that's middle age. That's dead on, straight up middle age. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, it is okay. It just, it makes me think of, I guess the, the thing that keeps going through my head is that um, I dated a girl for a while in high school. And, like, she was... Uh, like when she was like 15 and 16 years old, her, um, her mother turned 40. Okay? Oh, wow. Okay. So I think about going over to their house and they had like a little sign that said, holy moly, Susie's 40 or something yep. like that. And that's me now. <laughs> and I think about looking at that sign when I was 15 years old and seeing that, uh, like, oh my God, you know, 25 years, so long away. It's going to be so crazy. That's funny. And now, holy moly, Mike is 40. That's right. Well, not yet. You still have, what, five days? Yeah, I still have just a few days until the time is up. Yeah, so, you know, enjoy the last five days in your 30s. <laughs> you know, I, re- and then, I really don't mind. It's just It just makes me laugh. <laughs> and then we're going to tear it up on Friday at your birthday yes. party, right? Yes, we're going to have a rock and roll birthday so party. We want to make sure we invite everybody, especially listeners. Yes, if you guys, it's a free show, and if you're anywhere near the Madison area, come to the Yahara Bay Distillery in Madison on Friday night, November 18th, and uh, you don't even have to call the number. Just show up, and we'll show you a good time. That's right. I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait. And your birthday yes. parties are usually pretty epic, Mike. So. <laughs> They're usually pr- pretty. I, I usually end up feeling pretty foul the next day. So I, you, that's when you know a good a good time is had. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, that, yeah, but that's so. that's just just funny because I was thinking about that because you know we do so much that I don't even usually think about it. And then this morning I was just that 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 watching that sign, looking at that sign from when I was 15 years old, and I was like, okay. This time has passed. Middle age is here. And I can start complaining about my joints and hair loss oh, and no. all these things to look no. forward to. Oh, my back. It's my, everybody, it's their back. Yep. <laughs> it is. So, no, I don't mind. I'm excited. I'm in better shape than I was when I was 20. You know what I mean? Congratulations. Like, I was thinking about, because yesterday was the Madison Marathon, right? That's right. It's like, oh, yeah. two years. And it's like, I did the Madison Marathon a couple of years ago. When I was 20, there was no chance of me running a marathon. I was like, beer no drinking way. marathon. That's about all I was going to do. Or uh, Marlboro smoking marathoners, but all I could take when I was 20 years old. So I think that I feel lucky that at 40, <laughs> at 40 years old, I'm still, I can do things and I'm better shape than I was 20. So that's exciting. But Well, you get a gold star, Mike. Thanks. <laughs> a gold birthday star. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think positively about the passage of time. <laughs> because otherwise, when you talk, you know, it's like uh, we're, we played at a party on Saturday night. And it was a 40th birthday party. It was a re- really yeah. fun. But then when yes. I talk to people, somebody's like, hey, you're next. <laughs> Heard <laughs> dun, about dun, you. Dun. Yeah, that was me. You're, ne- <laughs> you're next, buddy. <laughs> Welcome to old population well, you. hey, you made it that far. Yes. And that's a good thing. That is. That is. I, um, I passed the Darwinian test. So <laughs> I could be right. happy about that. But, you know, speaking of old, uh, this, yes. week, the, this week's guest... You know, I, I wasn't quite sure what to think of it because he goes into it. Speaking of all this week's guests. Goes, in, goes into an old mystery. Ah. Okay, okay. that's the transition I was going for. He, he researches okay. and gets new stuff into an old mystery. And I wasn't sure what to think of him at first because I wasn't sure what his theory was going to be. But then we get into the conversation, and you guys are going to hear this in a little bit. And... Um, the theory makes sense about Jack the Ripper. Right. Okay? So it's a brand cool. brand new theory on the identity or identities of good old Jack the Ripper. And it amazes me that they can still investigate these crimes that are so old. Mm-hmm. 130 years ago now was Whoa. when he did this. Right. So, no, it's a real fascinating guy. And, and the funny thing, too, is, is like once... I looked him up because we, we got into communication. Once I looked this guy up, I realized that I recognize him from all of these 
karate magazines and martial arts magazines <laughs> <laughs> that my friends used to get because a couple of my friends were really into martial arts in high school. And he was a writer for all these martial arts magazines. So I remember seeing him in these magazines like wow, on my weird. friend's table. And it, we just had a good conversation from there. So I think you guys are going to enjoy. Cool. See you on the other side's first it, I can. This is like a Dateline episode. Like it's like Dateline Jack the Ripper, and I think you're That's gonna enjoy nice. our first foray into the world of Jack the Ripper. We've got an author and a Ripperologist and researcher, uh, private investigator, martial artist. It sounds like a real Renaissance man, an interesting character. Randy Williams with us today. Hi, Randy. Howdy. We just need to go into. Uh, a little bit about yourself, and so our listeners can learn uh, a little bit about Randy Williams and what got you interested in a you know 130 year old case in the first place. So, Randy, let us know a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, um, it's not really too exciting. Uh, I'm, I wear a lot of hats, uh, as you mentioned. Um, I'm a private investigator. I run Black Stallion Security and Investigations here in Northeast Pennsylvania, and uh, I'm a martial artist. I train in the style of Wing Chun Gong Fu, which is the style that Bruce Lee began with. And I was very fortunate to have his top student as my instructor, uh, Sifu Ted Wong, who passed away a few years back. Um, he was uh, so I have a direct lineage to Bruce Lee, which is kind of a cool thing to be able to. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. And yeah, so I'm I'm very into the, the martial arts. Some of your um, your listeners may have seen me in some of the martial arts magazines. Uh, especially in the, the 90s and the uh, early 2000s, I was, you know, in a lot of the Inside Kung Fu and Black Belt and those type magazines. So, uh, and I've written some books on, on the martial arts, but um, that kind of is what got me into being an author. But I've also been all my life long what we would call a ripperologist, which is a fancy name for somebody who's interested in the case. So um, I have recently written a book, as you mentioned, and my book is called Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror in which I help the reader understand what it is myself and my team uncovered regarding the case, but we do it in a way, uh, we try to make it fun and entertaining for people who wouldn't normally like to read just a cold uh, account of the case. I mean, I'm writing one of those too, Uh, don't get me wrong, but we we tried to introduce the theory in a kind of fun and entertaining way that might bring more people, you know, some people might not be into the Ripper case, but might be into Sherlock Holmes. You know, some people just like a mystery, a a fun kind of romp of a book. So we we try to do something that would bring the most people possible into the case and without kind of shoving it down their throat. Well, you know, it's funny without even getting to the um, the Jack the Ripper novel. Uh, when you talk about a pri- you know private investigation, a uh, a martial artist and private investigator, I mean, I feel like they probably should have done a book series or a, a TV series about you. Nobody would want to watch it. <laughs> so um, my mom would probably watch it though. Okay, no, that's great. That's great. So let's go a little bit into the Jack the Ripper real quick, uh, in case people need a, a quick refresher on the murders that happened in Whitechapel in uh, 1888. Can you give us a little background on, on Jack the Ripper for people who maybe don't remember it or haven't read about it in a while? Okay. Well, Jack the Ripper was probably, he's certainly not the world's first serial killer, but he was the first uh, serial killer of, of any great note that you know people took note of around the world. Mm-hmm. He killed, um, the, the popular belief or the... There are five murders that he committed that everyone agrees he did. And they're called the canonical five, meaning canonical, canon, accepted by all. Sure. But recently, the the work that I've done with my team has uncovered the fact that he actually killed 13, possibly 14. And I'll tell you how I connected them in a really strange way as we get into this. Okay. But, but the Ripper um, had killed... Uh, prostitutes, East End prostitutes in, in the poorest area of London called Whitechapel. And these women would work for like tuppence, two pennies, or a loaf of stale bread. They were so hungry. They were, they were, there was poverty and disease and homelessness, the hunger. It was, it was terrible in that part of London. And these women didn't choose to be prostitutes. They, they had to do it. And 
the term for prostitutes in those days, they were called unfortunates. And I think that's really a better name mm. than what we use today because they were thrown into that profession by their misfortune rather than by choice. Sure, the only way they could even get by was selling their body. That's right. And the Ripper uh, was someone who, up to now, people have believed he was a psychopath that had some sort of bloodlust. And there's a certain amount of truth to that um, in in what I've uncovered. But it wasn't entirely just uh, for bloodlust. He wasn't just like a Ted Bundy or a John Wayne Gacy who got purely sexual uh, or, or other kinds of release from the killings. Instead, these killings were based in politicism. They were they, the the motivation for the killings that I've uncovered was politics, race, and religion. Not necessarily in that order. There was a sexual element because, as I'll explain to you, the Ripper was actually three people that were funded, organized, and motivated by a fourth. So there were actually four jacks, as in every good deck of cards, there's four jacks. Okay. There was a jack of hearts who primarily stabbed the women in the heart. That's why I call him the jack of hearts. He also cut their throats. There was a jack of spades who did the horrific mutilations. He was the one that got the sexual thrill from it and began to enjoy the work. Um, and I call him the jack of spades because the spade isn't like a spade that we dig in the garden with. It's it's a sword. Mm. Um, then we had the Jack of Clubs, who was a member of the club that was run by the Jack of Hearts. It was a men's, quote-unquote, educational. And the fourth was the Jack of Diamonds, and he's the one that funded the whole operation. That's interesting, because, I mean, when you go into, like, why Jack the Ripper was, I mean, not just a murderer. You know, we, we talk about people who may be just killers for money or killers for insurance. You know, there's, uh, the, the, I think the great-great-grandson of H.H. Holmes right. is positing that, you know, H.H. Holmes was actually Jack the Ripper, but H.H. Holmes would kill people for money, as in, yeah. you know, no one's killing prostitutes for money in 1880s London, and also no one who was killing for money would do the disgusting things that Jack the Ripper would do, cutting out the organs and, and ripping it. No, it absolutely wasn't Holmes. It absolutely wasn't. Um, there's lots of reasons. I mean, you know, one of the things that uh, it makes me kind of unpopular in some of the Ripper circles is that um, what a lot of the guys who put forth uh, a suspect do is they will put forth a suspect who can absolutely be discounted right away by somebody like me. And not because I'm, I'm vehemently against them or not because uh, I'm trying to be negative, but just because I'm a detective and I know the case inside out. So if you're going to try to tell me that it was a non-Jewish man who worked alone, well, Holmes didn't work alone, but um, if you're going to try to put forth a non-Jewish suspect, you're, you're absolutely wrong because every eyewitness description of Jack the Ripper has him a Jew. He absolutely was Jewish. There's no question. I mean, it, it's... So what, what a lot of the guys do when Wait, they put forth a suspect... Real quick, though. Real, well, let, let's get into that. Okay, so now, why would we lead to a Jewish person as being the uh, Jack the Ripper? Many reasons that have already been known and many that I've uncovered. Let's start with eyewitness descriptions. Every reliable description given of the Ripper um, by eyewitnesses, they all say he was a Jew. He wore the typical astrakhan coat, which is a, a, the coat that's still worn today by a lot of the Jewish men that you see. It's got the, the lapels that have a kind of a velveteen sort of look. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a long coat. He wore the typical hat. that, that It's called a wide-awake hat that is still worn today by a lot of Jewish men. Um, in, in 1880s London, it would have been just as easy for the average person to identify a Jewish man as it would be today for somebody to say, you know, I think he was, uh, I don't know, either uh, African-American or he was, uh, uh, he looked like one of those Spanish gangbangers, maybe, maybe a cholo. So when people were talking about the outfit that Jack the Ripper wore, that Jack, the, so the eyewitnesses were saying that Jack the Ripper wore like a Hasidic Jewish outfit or what, you know, when we think of when you go to those areas in New York City or whatever, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's part of the, that population, yeah. the Jewish population. Yeah. Okay, that's one reason. Another is certain people heard him speak, and he ha absolutely had 
of a foreign accent of, of the, you know, the Bohemian type of accent, whether it would have been Czechoslovakian, Serbian, Russian, Croatian, Polish, they might not have known that one from the other. But they certainly knew a guy from Australia versus a, a, a British subject, a, a natural British subject or someone who was born outside the country. So they heard like an Eastern European kind of thing. Yes, yes. And we know that two of the Rippers were Russian and two were Polish. Okay, all right. So that's an interesting thing, and that's something that I hadn't heard before. Now, what do you think about that From Hell letter? Absolutely authentic. Now, there was a movie uh, a few years ago by the Hughes brothers. Uh, Johnny Depp was in that one, I think. And, yeah. oh, yeah. who was the... I can't think of the girl at the top of my head, and she's from she's from Milwaukee, and I can't think of her like right down the road. Anyway, she's roller girl and boogie. Anyway, Heather Heather Graham, and I love Heather Graham. And so in From yeah. Hell, they actually take the um, they take the title of that film from a letter that was sent. Yes, I have the letter right here. It was was sent to the um, George Lusk. George Lusk, the head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, who was a bully who was going around beating up Jews, innocent Jews. And here's uh, why... I, you, using, another, using it as an excuse. This is another reason why we know Jack was Jewish. He chose George Lusk to send this letter to. Now, George Lusk was relatively unknown. He hadn't been written up in the papers. Nobody knew who he was, except local Whitechapel Jews, because he was beating them all up with his gang of thugs. So that is why Jack the Ripper chose to terrorize him above everyone else with that piece of kidney. Now, I can talk to you about that letter ad nauseum because first of all we have we have the fact that it was sent to this guy who the jews were all afraid of and hated so he was somebody who was persecuting the local population yes but you see here's what a lot of ripperologists forget before he received that letter nobody knew him from adam he wasn't famous he wasn't in the newspapers every day talking he wasn't being interviewed he was just a local thug he only got notoriety after the Ripper letter was sent to him. So this is how we know that the person who chose him above all others was very, very likely a Jew. And there's a lot of other reasons I'll explain to you about that letter. And I'll just read the letter aloud to anybody uh, who wants to hear because it's real short. And it says, from hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you the other piece. I fried and ate it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Right. Well, what you didn't do was read the intended accent into it, because you can see he intended an Irish accent to be read into it. Oh, the preserved for you, Tother Pierce. Mr. Lusk, sore. Um, he was trying to read an Irish accent into it, oh. which tells you that he was anything but an Irishman. Okay, sure. Irish guys don't spell sore. They just say sore. But they don't <laughs> right. spell it sore. So that's interesting. So the, the letter was actually written, you know, we think about, uh, you know, Mark Twain using, you know, using the spelling in Huckleberry Finn so that you can hear the accents of all the characters in your head. That right. these guys were doing that when they sent the letter to George Lusk. Yes. Now let's talk about the name of the letter, From Hell. I racked my brain when I first read that letter, well, not when I first read it, but when I was really going heavy into proving my case, I racked my brain, from hell, from hell. Why do I know that phrase? From hell. I, I start Googling from hell, and I come up with a million Johnny Depp references. Right, of course. But then finally, around page 50, from hell's heart, I stab at thee. The last line of Moby Dick. Oh, yeah. that is Captain Ahab says it. So then I go, Ahab, Ahab, wait a minute. Captain Ahab, he was Jewish. He was named after the great king Ahab, who was married to Jezebel, the evil queen Jezebel, um, whose roots were in prostitution. Right, and, every, and that's what they call, you know, that's a nickname for a prostitute, is Jezebel. Thank you. Thank you. So now, let, let me go a little further. Oh, pretty good. Because you brought it up, and I'm glad you did. <laughs> now, we look at the letter. And we have a mention of cannibalism, a very, very taboo and unknown subject in Victorian London. But guess who's a cannibal in Moby Dick? Queequeg, his second mate. The Polynesian guy. Yes. Now, who was his first mate? Ishmael, a 17-year-old. 
Now, the first mate of Louis Deemschutz, the person who I've proven was Jack the Ripper, was Isaac Kozbrodsky, a 17-year-old, who was arrested with him in a, in a violent crime that had nothing to do with the Ripper killings, six, less than six months after the double event. So Ishmael is his right-hand man. Now, I believe that he thought of the International Working Men's Educational Club that he was the president of. That was his Pequod, upon which he would recruit club members. The jack of clubs I never got to. But Samuel Friedman, who was also arrested on that day, um, was a club member and also used a club to beat the policemen that they assaulted, among other people. So we have Queequeg, a cannibal. We have Ishmael, Isaac, a 17-year-old first mate. And we also have the fact that I believe that Dean Schutz thought of himself as Ahab, you know, which that is a, a book that would appeal to socialists, which Dean Schutz was. Sure. And he, here we have Ahab, who's named after this great king, whose mission in life is to bring down the great white whale, which I believe Dean Schutz thought of England or the queen as the great white whale that had made him less than a man, treated him like less than a man. Of course, in the book, the whale ate his leg off. Right. <laughs> made him less than a man. But I believe that he thought of himself as an Ahab who was going to bring down the great white whale that was England at all costs. Now, his club, the International Working Men's Educational Club, was far from an educational club. Well, let, yeah, let, let's get to that too. So if we set up a little bit of the historical thing here. So by the time we get to you know, 1888, socialism is already set up as, a, I mean, it's, it's already pretty in a movement. I mean, we don't have the first socialist, I mean, until the Bolsheviks in, in Russia for another 30 years, but uh, Karl Marx has already released his manifesto. In 1840. Him, him and Engels. And also, I mean, uh, when we talk about the, uh, the Jewish population, like, you know, Marx was a Jewish intellectual uh, at the time. So you could see that it would be attractive to, I mean, other people in the, you know, other intellectuals of the same kind of thing, and then socialism spreading through that community. So Absolutely right. Now, the International Working Men's Educational Club had branches all over the world, but it was a socialist club whose agenda was to bring down England at all costs. If you look at their propaganda, which I have dug up myself and read all of, translated from the Hebrew— um, it's all about destroying England at all costs. You know, and I think that's a different uh, look at it, too, the fact that you're looking at some of these these newspapers and socialist dailies and stuff like that and that were going along to different members of the club and uh, in the 1880s. And, you know, they weren't written in English, that they no. were Hebrew. written in Hebrew. And so that kind of also sets up the like political climate when you're talking about guys like George Lusk, who may have been anti-Semitic kind of... No question he was. So like anti-Semitic kind of groups beating up on the quote-unquote other of the... Because you have the, the working man's club full of Jewish guys who also have a socialist agenda. And of course, I mean, Karl Marx talks about him himself in uh, his manifesto in that... They wanted a revolution. You know, they wanted to do that. And he thought of America as the place, Marx thought of America as the place for a revolution, but it ended up being Europe where it was happening. So I just kind of wanted to set that up for the listeners to realize why it would be such a politically charged climate and why these guys would find another reason for anti-Semitic violence happening in the 1880s. You're so in right. London. You're so right. Because what, what I've been getting is a lot of backlash from, from certain ripperologists who say, Oh, come on, Randy. Uh, you expect me to believe that three guys would work together to attack Christianity and to attack uh, England? I mean, come on. How ridiculous can you get? And I say to them, look around you, man. Do you not see what's going on with ISIS today? Do you not see small groups of guys like in Paris banding together and killing innocent people who have nothing to do with the situation in order to put forth their cause, which is political and religious? Well, I mean, it, I mean it's, it's absolutely... It was a small group of people who started World War One, you know, 26 to 27 years later of people who were planning when they planned the uh, assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. So when you go into small groups of people that decide to raise havoc, cause problems, um, it can be, you know, it can be five guys can start a war, <laughs> can start a world war. So I think that's a uh, that's that really is an interesting 
point what you're going to. Okay, so we've got the letter, we've got the organization. Now, how did you link it to this particular organization? I, first of all, I love the stretch from the Moby Dick. To me, that's brilliant. I think that's, that's a, even if it's not true, it's an awesome book report. That, that's what I call conjectural evidence. I've divided my case into direct evidence, uh, circumstantial evidence, and what I call conjectural evidence. The conjectural evidence wouldn't convict anyone. You see, it, but once you've accepted the evidence that I'll put forth, then it makes sense when you present the conjectural stuff. It wouldn't convict someone. Do you remember the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway? Yes. In the Northeast? Mm-hmm. Okay. When they were finding all these bodies of, of the women, they were finding these tiny flecks of red paint on the bodies. And nobody could figure out what it was. And it was only after Gary Ridgway was caught through DNA... And by the way, he was talked to very early in the investigation uh, and discounted, just like my guy was. But um, what happened was they found out that he was a Kenmore truck painter for by trade. Well, Kenmore trucks are always red. Mm. And that explained the little flecks of red paint that no one could get. Now, in the case of the Ripper, there's a lot of this type of red flecks of paint that haunt the case. You know, and I'll point out some of them. But they're what I call conjectural. And the Moby Dick thing to me is a bit of conjectural. I would never present that first. Sure. You know, if I was putting this case forth in court. But once I'd presented my direct and circumstantial evidence, then I would present this as, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you believe what I've told you so far, and if you verify the evidence that I've shown you, now can you see this connection coming in? Sure. And uh, no, that's such an interesting thought. Now, what led you to these guys in particular? Because when I hear about things about the Jack the Ripper case, they, you know, people have linked it to the royal family. And I think the, that movie from hell, no, I mean, I guess spoiler for a 16-year-old movie here, they linked it to like one of the royal family's doctors. Yeah, no, it wasn't Sir William Gall. He was 70-something and enfeebled then anyway. But in any case. But how did you even start seeing these guys? I did something that's sort of akin to profiling, but backwards. What I did was I took and I made a template out of the 100 most prolific serial killers of all time. I, I did a, a sort of um, uh, a template where I said, okay, in, in every serial killer case, what are the, the common denominators that are always true or 90% of the time are true? And many of the things were, here's some of them. I'll just give you a few of them. People that insert themselves into the investigation by pretending to find a body, for example, or by coming forth as an eyewitness or helping in the search for a body. Um, people that are spoken to immediately by the police and discounted, mm-hmm. because almost every one of them was. Ted Bundy, Gary Ridgway, John Wayne Gacy, uh, you know, pick your favorite serial killer. He was talked to and discounted early in the game. It does seem like that is a trend that happens and that they'll always be like, oh, yeah, well, we talked to that guy in the beginning, but we figured that, you know, he couldn't have done it. Or there was a reason that, you know, we just didn't figure it was him. And then, you know, 10 years later, they're like, yep, that that was him with the bodies in a basement. And there's an absolutely fantastic reason why everyone has discounted Louis Deemschutz. And I'll explain to you how I got past that later. But in any case... So I made this template, and it was basically like sieves that I created this series of, of sort of qualifications for my killer. And I put everybody, I mean everybody, who had even the slightest thing to do with this case through these sieves. Some of them were eyewitness descriptions. Some of them were d- descriptions of the jewelry he wore. Some of them were, you know, was he spoken to by the police early? Did he insert himself ad nauseum? So I, I, I did all these these sort of filters. And then I put everybody, all the current suspects, I put every police officer through it, every eyewitness through it, every person even remotely associated with the investigation through this this sort of uh, series of, of filters. And at the end, I was left with only three men. And those three men, coincidentally, were arrested together for a violent crime that took place less than six months after the double event. And it was just really weird. And I said, wait a minute, these three guys, not only did they pass through every qualification, 
but they were associated with each other in a criminal fraternity. Let's go through the qualifications real quick. So when you talked about that sieve, what were some of the things that, how you got it down from the 100 people that you thought were the top suspects down to the last three? Like what were the um, filter categories? Categories, we go in. Okay, yeah. Well, the, the first one was eyewitness descriptions. And, you know, eyewitness descriptions put him as a male. Uh, he's either 19, 25 to 30, or 45 years old, or 40 to 45. Okay. So they have to be and, at least so at least one of those age groups. They had to fit in one of those age groups. Now, they had to have at least a beard and whiskers. They had to have a foreign accent of some sort. They had to be someone that would have been seen wearing a variety of hats because this, um, the Ripper was seen to wear at least 12 different hats. Okay. They had to be someone who, um, well, was Jewish. I hate to say it, but because the description, you know, I didn't, it's not that I'm anti-Semitic. If it led me to an African or a, a German or whoever, I, I would go there. But I go with sure. the evidence. No, you, you follow the leads, and of course, nobody's discriminating on anything besides evidence. Right, and because and, I didn't say he was Jewish. They did. Um, so, you know, that. There, was, um, there were other qualifications. Did the police speak to him early in the game and, and then drop him? Well, of course, all the people associated, even, even the police themselves, they would pass through that one. I would say, well, okay, the police didn't speak to this guy because he was a policeman, or did they? Because, yeah, he was involved, so, okay, I'll put him in. So I didn't just outright disqualify anyone on any one count. They had to be disqualified on five counts before I would leave them out. And eventually you got it down to these three dudes. Yeah. And so I just wanted to double check on all of our categories there that they could have filtered down through. And so you get down to them, and then... What happened six months afterwards? What are they picked up for together? Now, they were all three. Now, let me just say, these are the first three guys that came out the door when Dean Schutt supposedly found the first of the double event bodies. Okay, what was the double event real quick? Double event was a a, a night when Jack the Ripper had warned the police with a postcard that he was going to kill two girls this time. And he said, just so you know it's me, I'm going to cut off her ear so that, that you'll know it's me. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but basically this was the message. Mm-hmm. Now, the night of the double event was a night when Louis Diemschutz, the, the steward or president of the Jewish International Working Men's Educational Club, came home from work and found the body of Elizabeth Stride in the gateway of his clubhouse. Okay, so actually one of the people that you think is part of the conspiracy found the body. Yes, which is one of the re- one of the qualifiers that... That brought him into it because I needed people that had something to do with the finding of a body. So that was one of the filters. So Diemschutz goes in the house, screams for help, and out the door come his wife, Isaac Kozabrodsky, the 17-year-old, 18 at that time, uh, Samuel Friedman, 40, 41 years old at the time, and uh of course, there's Diemschutz, so there's four of them, right? Now, the, the, now let's fast forward to the crime you asked me about that they were picked up for together. There, there was a, a march that, that took place from the Jewish International Working Men's Educational Club, led by Diemschutz, Kozbrodsky, and Friedman. They all walked to this synagogue, which was a half a mile from the club, which was coincidentally the location of the second murder of the double event. Hmm. It was called the Great Synagogue in Duke Street. They led the marchers to the Great Synagogue, which was run by Diemschutz's arch enemy, the Reverend Adler. Dr. Adler absolutely hated Diemschutz and everyone from the club because he felt like they were rabble-rousers who were making Jews look bad. And he would give sermons against the IWMEC members. Now, the IWMEC guys then led this group of protesters to the the great synagogue and demanded to be let in. And Adler said, get out of here. We don't want you. And he kicked them out. Coincidentally, the second murder of the double event that took place that night took place in front of Adler's church. Oh, that's weird. Wait, there's going to be more connections. Just wait. (laughs) 
So now they're marching back and they come back to the club. And they're having this, you know, this big, uh, you know, they're screaming and yelling and this big uh, uprising. And so other people start coming, non-Jewish people start coming and other Jewish people start coming. And one of the people that came was a guy called Israel Sunshine. He was a guy who Deem Schutz hated, who was against the IWMEC. Deem Schutz, Kozbrodsky and Friedman proceeded to beat the crap out of this guy with clubs and sticks. And it just turns out, it just so happens that, I, and this is something I discovered, Israel Sunshine's address was 108 slash 116 or 119 Goulston Street which is the exact location where Jack the Ripper left the Goulston Street Graffito, where he wrote, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Yes. He wrote it on Israel Sunshine's front door. Oh, God. So it, it makes it feel like everybody who is against Deem Shits is using these murders as a way to get back at the people who don't like his club. Yes. I believe he was trying to get a bunch of people to think it was Sunshine and go to his house and start investigating him and make his life miserable. But it gets better. Just wait. So now they beat up, they beat the crap out of Israel and some other Jewish guys, as well as some non-Jewish people, including a couple of kids and women. So the police come. Now, when the police come, Officer Frost, PC William Frost, shows up, tells Deemschutz, you know, to calm down, stop this, you know, violence. And Deemschutz grabs him. Friedman, Deemschutz, and Kozbrowski drag him to the exact spot inside the gateway where Elizabeth Stride's body was found by Deemschutz. The exact spot, not, not five feet behind it, not five feet in front of it, the exact spot. And they proceed to beat him to a bloody pulp and break his leg. Deemschutz stomps his leg and breaks it. Another policeman goes to grab Deemschutz and arrest him. And Deemschutz's wife jumps on the policeman's back and starts hitting him with a, 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 a broom. So this so is like now, a I mean this is like a riot. It was a riot. It was called the Socialist Riot of, of 1889, March 16th, 1889, less than six months after the double event. So now I'm thinking, now this is just too good to be true. Here I've got four connections to the double event. They went to the Reverend Adler's church. They were kicked out by him. They beat the crap out of Israel Sunshine, who lives at 108/119 Goulston Street, where the graffito was left. They dragged PC Frost to the very spot where, where you know, the, this uh, victim was supposedly found by Deemschutz. And the four people that are uh, involved are Deemschutz, Kozbrodsky, Friedman, and Deemschutz's wife. The first four people that came out the door the night of the finding of the body, of the 50-odd people that were in the clubhouse, those four happened to be the first four out the door. Why? Of course we know why, because they knew they were in on it. So they were all waiting in the kitchen right. for him to come in and give the signal. But come on, you know, how, how could you possibly have four connections to the double event? It, that is very coincidental. I mean, that is extraordinarily coincidental. Now, going back to why Deemschutz has been discounted by everybody who's anybody, the reason why people say it wasn't him was because he came home at one roughly one o'clock if you listen to him, but I know it was closer to 1240, pretended to find this body, raised a big stink, and he knew from the previous killings he had done, all within a half a mile of his house, he knew that from the moment someone started screaming for the police, that within 30 minutes, every policeman in London would be there. So here's what he did. He said, okay, here's what we're going to do, boys. I'm going to find a prostitute. I'm going to bring her back to the club because we want some propaganda for our club. We want our club's name to go out in all the newspapers. I mean, the only reason anybody like us even knows the club existed is because of Jack the Ripper. Right. So it was propaganda, which is near and dear to socialists. So he says, all right, we're going to get some publicity for the club. I'm going to find this body here at one o'clock. You, Friedman, and you, Kozbrowski, you're going to run ostensibly for the police. And what you're really going to do is you're going to run to Reverend Adler's church in Mitre Square, and you're going to find a prostitute because that's a big prostitution area and you're going to murder her and you're going to do it, but you're going to wait until exactly a half an hour after I've screamed for the police, because I know that at that time, every policeman in London will be at my house talking to me. 
And because I've warned them of the double event and the clipping off of the ear, which, by the way, took place in Mitre Square. They did clip off the ear in Mitre Square. So what you're going to do is you're going to do this killing when it absolutely couldn't be me. Because I'm with the police at the club. Oh, sure. Right. So he sets up a distraction. And since all the police are there, they're more free than to do the other killing. And it creates a, because they're thinking of that Jack the Ripper is one person, it creates a, um, uh, like, well, it can't be him and it can't be them. Airtight alibi. Ironclad. So now, after the killing, Kozbrodsky comes running back to the club, you know, pretending as, as not to have been able to find a policeman. And Friedman just goes home, drops the knife on his way home. The knife of the killing was found 0.2 miles from uh, Friedman's home, along the way that is most directly to his house. Hmm. Now, Friedman just did, never did come back to the club. But we, I know he was there because in Diemschutz's own Hebrew newspaper, he mentions Friedman was there. When Diemschutz gave his statements to the police and the, the newspapers and the inquest, they never mention Friedman being there. But in their own Jewish newspaper that I translated, Friedman's mentioned as one of the first people that came out the door. So which one's the jack of clubs? Which one's the jack of hearts? Like, let's go over quick your, um, your playing deck of these jacks and these guys. And then I want to talk a little bit about what maybe could have motivated them uh, okay. as well. So, so which jack is which? Now, I call Diemschutz the Jack of Hearts. Why? One of the very first murders, Ripper murders, was a woman named Martha Tabro, who was killed in George Yard Stables, which, by the way, is where Diemschutz kept his horse and cart stable. But she wasn't considered a Ripper victim. She was stabbed in the heart by a nine-inch blade, and her throat was cut by a nine-inch blade. But the rest of the horrible mutilations that took place in her sex organs and her stomach and body mm -hmm. um, were done by a six inch blade. So they don't consider her a ripper victim. Why? Most, most don't. You tell me, I don't know. Well, because it doesn't fit with the most people's theory. Sure. And they, as I was telling you before, what they have a tendency to do when it doesn't fit, they go, Oh no, throw that out. See, every bit of evidence fits my theory perfectly. I don't have to throw any of it out. But if you read the typical uh, Jack the Ripper theories out there, they'll say, well, the letter was fake. Or, or the, the, the eyewitnesses were wrong about him being Jewish. Or uh, Tabram wasn't a, a ripper killing. You know, they'll think of excuses why that doesn't fit, so that's not part of their theory. But in my case, every single bit of evidence strengthens my case. Why? Because I'm right. <laughs> in any case. In any case. So Tabram was killed with two knives. Now, interestingly, the double event... Elizabeth Stride, the one that was found at the club, mm -hmm. was killed with a nine-inch blade. But Catherine Eddowes, who was killed in front of Reverend Adler's synagogue, killed with a six-inch blade. So we're connecting that then to the first victim, killed with a nine-inch and a six-inch blade. Yep. Okay. And, yes. and so you think that was that jack of hearts, like he, the ringleaders, that was his killing? Yes. yes he, killed, he stabbed her in the heart and he cut her throat. And the other, the 17-year-old, Kozbrodsky, the, the jack of spades, he did the mutilation on her sex organs. Now, let's go before Martha Tabram. There was a woman called Emma Smith who was attacked, and she died four days after her attack. She was attacked in Brick Lane, and she said, well, three guys attacked me. One was about 19. One was 26 to 30, and the other was like 45, and he just stood guard. Ah, okay. So then you have attacked by all the Jacks at once. All three together. I think they, they did all the killings but the double event together. They did all the other killings as a group of three, but the double event, the three of them did the first one, but only two of them did the second one. That accounts for the MO being slightly different and for the use of only one knife rather than two. Okay, so we have the uh, Jack of Hearts, the Jack of Spades, and who's the Jack of Clubs? Samuel Friedman, a club member who was arrested with Diemschutz for using a club to beat the policeman. I call him the Jack of Clubs. Now, most probably or possibly the most important of the group was the Jack of Diamonds, the person who funded the group. He was a, a member of the Russian aristocracy, so there is a royal connection. Mm. He was Prince Alexander Kropotkin. Prince Kropotkin, or uh, Peter Alexander Kropotkin. So Prince Peter Kropotkin, 
who was a very, very famous socialist leader, anarchist. He's the one of the founders of the anarchist movement. Now, Kropotkin had been arrested and imprisoned twice for subversive political actions. He was also expelled from Switzerland, which is no small feat to be expelled from Switzerland, right. under suspicion for organizing the assassination of the Tsar of Russia. So he has a, at least a suspicion of paying people to do political killings. Mm -hmm. Now, Prince Kropotkin was a, a certified member of the International Working Men's Educational Club and did quite a few appearances at the club. I've dug up many a document that proves he was connected to the club. So this guy, uh, the funding guy, was somebody who was putting money into the club Yes. Um, and so he would have known the rest of the, he would have known Samuel Freeman. He'd have known Dean Schitz. He'd have known uh, the kid. He'd, he'd know these people. Of course he did. As a matter of fact, I can prove he did with documents. So I absolutely can prove he was a member of the, of the club that they, that Dean Schitz was the president of. Not only a member, he paid for the whole club. So who puts the president in place? You know, if right. I open the club and I fund it, I think I have something to say about who's the president. Now, remember, Kropotkin was a Russian prince. Diemschutz was Russian as well. Now, Diemschutz, which, by the way, that wasn't his name, because guess what? Diemschutz isn't a real surname. It's a, ah. it's a Russian and German word that means protector of noble women. That's I ironic. He, I believe he came into the country under Kropotkin's instructions specifically for this mission. And I think he created a, a pseudonym, a fake name, and he chose one that he thought, oh, let's let's choose something funny. Let's let's play a word game because he was big on word games. I'll show you some of them. But he chose the name Diemschutz, which means protector of noble women. Like, let's call the herd. Let's get these prostitutes out of the herd. I protect noble women. Mm, that's an interesting way to look at it. Now, Kozbrodsky uh, was Polish and so was Friedman. But the, the ringleader and the funder, the Prince Kropotkin, what I call the Jack of Diamonds, he was Russian. He was, one of, he was well acknowledged as one of the great thinkers of the 19th century to come out of Russia. You know, when you think about socialists, they would be doing things to help the working man or working woman. I mean, it's, the whole idea of socialism is to help the people who are on the bottom of the economic ladder. And I can think of no people lower on the economic ladder than the poor prostitutes in Whitechapel right. in the 1880s. You're so right. But here's what happened. What they were trying to do was this, they were trying to shine the light of the world on the underbelly, the worst part of England, where Jews were being repressed, treated like slaves, where there was prostitution, where there was hunger, where there was disease, where there was homelessness. And in fact, one could argue that they did by killing 14 prostitutes help thousands of prostitutes because eventually Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria rather was was forced to clean that area up and put forth programs for these women and to do things for the Jews and to eliminate what they called the sweating system. So it, it is arguable that they actually did help prostitutes in general. Fourteen had to die so that thousands could benefit. Well, and that's an interesting way to look at it, too, because I've never, ever thought of Jack the Ripper as a politically motivated killing in the first place. From your research, why do you think that it wasn't just the murder? Why do you think it was also the mutilation of the sex organs, all that kind of, I mean, that, that, that clinical part of it that led people to believe it was a doctor and also, I mean, grossed everybody out? I think for, for sensationalism as part of propaganda. In other words, sex sells. You know, Victorian is a term for that time in England under Queen Victoria, but it's also kind of a synonym for prurient or, or prudishness. Yeah, definitely prudish. That's a good way to put it. And so in Victorian England, now imagine yourself as a guy in Victorian England. There wasn't like porn. There wasn't sex in the movies. There wasn't Playboy magazine even. And, you know, it was a very repressed sexual society. Yes. And so if you would imagine, okay, just today, when we think about murders that take place, and you're flipping through the newspaper and you see prostitute murdered on Long Island, 
that kind of grabs the attention of a lot of people. It's it's salacious. It's 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 deviant. It's it's there's something you know dirty or there's something you know sexual about it. Absolutely. Well, I think about Jeffrey Dahmer um, growing up in Milwaukee, and when you know when people tell about the story about Jeffrey Dahmer, it's like yeah, he was a he did all these you know he was a serial killer, but then what got people the hook was the sick sex stuff that he did. Well, I think you've answered your own question then. There you go. Because what they did was they took a subject that they knew would grab the attention of everybody around the world, and they did it in order to shine a light on this worst part of England. Because back then, people used to think of England as, you know, the changing of the guard, Buckingham Palace, Trafalgar Square, Piccadilly Circus, Fountains, polo games, right. tea and trumpets. The height of Western civilization because the sun never sets on the British Empire. Thank you. And so what they did was they were trying to shine a light on the, seam, the unseemly underbelly of England and show the world, hey, London, supposedly the capital of all this, isn't all that you guys think it's cracked up to be. Mm. And they wanted to bring the attention of the world on these problems. And so if you look at ISIS today... And they think, well, it's okay to just kill a whole bunch of people in a crowd. Uh, it's okay to just blow up uh, a bunch of people or drive a truck through a big parade. It's okay to kill all these innocent people to make our point. Well, the Ripper, they did something similar, but it, they were at least, and, and I hate to even say it this way, because I don't think of prostitutes as being any less of a person than you or I. Of course. But in their mind, they said, well, we have to kill somebody here. So let's do it to somebody that'll do some good for our cause, rather than just some random anybody. Sure, it was the most acceptable sacrifice. In, in, in my opinion. So I think that they thought of a prostitute as a person who really didn't have much to live for anyway, and if I have to kill somebody for my cause, better them you know, than, than somebody who has nothing to do with any crime or any, any of the social ills that I'm trying to fight. And I think we're trying to get the attention on prostitution here because they despise prostitution. You look at Karl Marx's writings, absolutely despise prostitution. Right, because it's it's the most taking advantage of somebody. I mean, that's the like that's when you talk about the, you know, the working class being exploited. I mean, sexual exploitation is the, you know, is the the most you can do to someone. Yeah. So I don't think they hated prostitutes per se. They hated prostitution. Sure. And and I think that they did choose the victims for the simple reason that they wanted to shine the light on prostitution for a number of reasons, for their propaganda, to bring that salacious sexual element into the case that would get the most attention and, and further their cause. Absolutely. And then force the hand of, you know, Queen Victoria to do something for the, uh, the working class in Whitechapel and to protect those people. And maybe also because obviously the Jewish people in England with the protocols, the elders of Zion and all the kind of anti-Semitism that was, those guys were getting it the worst too. So they, yes. they shine the light on that. And that's a really fascinating theory of something, a, a, a political motivation and not some kind, we always think of it as some kind of psychosexual thing, but a political motivation behind Jack the Ripper, um, behind the killings and a trio of killers and a fourth one uh, mastermind behind it. Randy, I want you to tell people where they can pick up this book and where they can learn more about your fascinating theories. Well, um, you, you can learn more about my theory. I did a whole bunch of, of essays on my Facebook page for the book, which is, um, I think it's called Randy Williams versus Jack the Ripper. Awesome. With no spaces in between. And we're so going to link Randy. to that in the show notes too. So everybody who's listening right here can just jump on the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 118. Click the link and it'll take you right to Randy's site. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, my book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can get it. Um, it's only in Kindle version at the moment. It won't be in hard and soft cover until January. But the Kindle version is out. And basically, if you just Google Randy Williams, Sherlock Holmes, or Sherlock Holmes in the Autumn of Terror, but it's on the Barnes and Noble, the Amazon, and the uh, uh, you, you know you can get it on the Nook or any of those sites. And I'll give you the links to them. Uh, I hope that uh, your, your listeners will, will check into it because there's so much more than we've discussed. No, and I was going to say, like, now that we, you know, we're reaching like, the time for the interview, I'm like, oh, my God, well, I have a million more questions. So, Randy, I'm going to check out the book. We're going to put the links in the show notes. And I'm, more, I'm definitely interested in learning more stories from you directly. So I'm sure we will talk to you 
uh, again. But thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I could have talked to Randy all day. I think that he really has his evidence down and each little piece. Like, you know that he knew he was going to have to defend this to his death. Definitely. And so uh, I think it was really fun. I want to thank Randy Williams for joining us. And again, yes, thank you. if you guys want to uh, get a link to his books and find out more about exactly uh, his theory on the identities of the four Jacks, as he calls them, Jack the Ripper, <laughs> Uh, then we have the link to that is at the show notes at othersidepodcast.com slash 118. That's right. And anybody in the Madison area, don't forget, celebrate getting old with me Friday, November 18th with Sunspot's going to be there. Me, Wendy, and Ben will be playing songs for you. Uh, oh, yeah. We even have a little uh, ad we can play. Yes, we do. So check this out. Hey, this is Rocker from Maximum Inc. And this is Mike from Sunspot. And we're having Mike and Rocker's Birthday Bash, Friday, November 18th, live music at Yahara Bay Distillery. Free admission, free pizza from It's a Pizza, and drink specials from Rocker Vodka. Music starts at 6 p.m. All happening at the new Yahara Bay Distillery, 6250 Nesbit Road, just on the way to Quivy's Grove. We'll see you Friday at the free birthday bash. So for this week's Sunspot song, we thought we'd use that inspiration of, um, well, Randy really talked about the Jack the Ripper murders as uh, an act of political terrorism. And yeah. that, that was the thing. People would have like bombings. They're just that like we have suicide bombings and things like that now. I mean, that was something that anarchists would do in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, if you ever see the movie J. Edgar with that dreamboat Leonardo DiCaprio as J. Edgar Hoover... Okay. It's anarchist bombings at the beginning of that movie that helps set um, his career in motion in the FBI. Okay. And so, you know, we think about terrorism as, you know, from the 1970s on and all. It, well, maybe the Islamic terrorism that we faced, but like people have been using bombings and murders for terrorism for, you know, at least a century now. And in the eyes of the world players or the, the, the people that think that this is an acceptable sacrifice, whether it's those poor prostitutes in 1880s Victorian London, or it could be a drone strike that accidentally blows up an Afghan, Afghan wedding, like that kind of thing. It's, it's the regular people that suffer for the people in charge who want to screw around. And that's the inspiration for this week's song, Grist for the Mill. When the boots of history stop walking, well, you better get in line. Cause the great men do the talking and the small men do the dying. When the kings and queens come calling, well, we all know the drill. You and I, my friend, are just grist for the mill. Thank you for listening to today's episode.
You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, 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 you know what time it is. It's time to talk about the Patreon community, <laughs> OthersidePodcast.com slash donate if you want to get involved. And we just want to tell our patrons, number one, we love you. And number two, our brother Ned is at the level that he gets a shout out every single episode to see you on the other side. So thank you very much, Ned. Thanks, Ned. And thanks, everybody. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. See you at the party, Richter. And now, holy moly, Mike is 40. Oh, my back!